This is a Visual Audio Times production. Hello and welcome to Imole, your go-to mental health, wellness and spirituality podcast. I am your host, Palumi. Thank you for hitting play on this episode. Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcast so you don't miss out on new episodes. Also, follow Imole on Instagram and Twitter at ImoleThePod. Before we start today's episode, I'd like for us to calm our nerves with a short meditation exercise. Follow the sound of my voice. Breathe in slowly. Breathe out slowly. Today, we are going to speak on attachment styles and how the way we grow plays a huge role or a huge influence on who we become and our interactions with others. For example, if you grew up with absent parents, it's likely that you crave emotional intimacy as an adult and worry about whether or not somebody wants to be with you. But don't just take my word for it. I have a very special guest today. Her name is Amanda Iheme and she's here to talk to us about this. Amanda is an Igbo Nigerian who works as a psychotherapist and an architecture photographer in Lagos. She runs her private practice called Indidi, which means patience, where she currently works with private clients suffering from depression, anxiety, trauma, existential and existential crisis. She also organizes private and public lectures and provides psychotherapy sessions for the staff of corporate firms. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Hello, Kwelumi. Thank you so much for having me. How's your day been? Uh, it's been okay. Just handling it. Typical, typical day here in West Africa. <laughs> but <laughs> so let's start from the basics. Yeah. What exactly is an attachment style? Because most people have heard of the term attachment style, fearful avoidance, but they don't really understand what it is. So please, can you break it down for us? Okay, so your attachment style is, to be honest, is exactly what the term is. It's how you attach to people. So how you form um, relationships and interact and behave in those relationships with friendships, with romantic relationships, even at work. So the types of people you find yourself gravitating towards, the kinds of people that you, you find yourself more attuned towards, like, you know, being attracted to or wanting to stay with is a definition or an evidence of what type of attachment style you have. And also even the way you stay in that relationship or in that friendship, how you interact and how you behave in it is also an evidence of of your attachment style. So it's usually used to describe romantic relationships, but then you can also see some of it in friendships and even in some family dynamics, but mostly around romantic relationships and friendships. Mm, so what are the different types of attachment styles? So we have a secure attachment style. And when a person is securely attached, it means that they do not become upset when the person that they love, their significant order, the person that they are intimately attached to leaves. They are not very, very upset. They don't feel like they are, you know, how do I say, 
they're losing love. They're not able to have love. They, people that have secure attachment styles have good self-esteem. They are emotionally vulnerable with their friends and their romantic partners. They can seek out social support when they are um, in times of uh, distress. And they tend to have much more lasting, long-lasting, trusting, healthy relationships. So they are more empathetic and they are less aggressive. They are less disruptive and they are more um, mature when it comes to dealing with their feelings in, term, in relation to other people. So that's a secure attachment style. Then we have people who have um, an avoidant attachment style. And what, what happens is that this person um, has issues with intimacy. So rather than go towards intimate relationships, what they find is even though they desire intimate relationships, they tend to be fearful of those intimate relationships and tend to avoid them. So if they find themselves getting comfortable with someone or they find themselves getting emotionally vulnerable with the person, what they do is they tend to pull away. And they invest very little emotions into their, their social and their romantic relationships and they're not as vulnerable. So an avoidant person is what you may call emotionally unavailable. Then you have people who have um, an anxious attachment style and uh, people who have an anxious attachment style are constantly, you know, seeking for love, seeking for approval and wanting to be um, the subject of a person's affection and their attention. So it's like, and if that is not working for them, they tend to want to do more to get the person that they love to love them. They also are very sensitive to um, rejection and to even just the, the slightest suggestion of rejection or even just their perception of rejection can make them very, very uncomfortable and make them also feel like the person that they are attached to does not really love them or care about them the way that they should. There are different types. There are anxious, preoccupied attachments can also be um, defined as ambivalent, but I prefer secure, anxious, avoidant, and um, fearful avoidant uh, as well. Yeah. So different, there are different ways of defining it, but usually they usually fall around those three categories. You're either secure, you're anxious, or you're avoidant. Hmm. So many people yeah. don't realize that the environment they grew up in, right, to how they grew up and the yeah. way they were socialized contributes to how they form bonds with others. Can you just expand mm -hmm. on how our environment can influence our relationships with others? Yeah. So from the moment that you're born as a child, that is when you begin to form your attachment with a significant person. So it's like the first example or the first um how do I say the first experience of love and affection and acceptance is usually between the child and their significant caregiver. So which could be your mother. It could, excuse me, it could be your mother. It could be your father. It could be anyone else. So from that beginning, if you are exposed to an attachment and your parents are not as present, um, as you'd want them to be, or they're not as emotionally available as you'd need them to be. We children need parents to be emotionally available for them and need their parents to be present to comfort them during times of need and also to let them know that even though they are not there physically, that they still love them, that emotional constancy that they experience. So when you grow up in an environment where your parents' emotions are not very constant, um, your parents are not, or your primary caregiver is not as present as they need to be or reinforced that sense of self-worth and self-esteem or that they're not vulnerable with you or they don't even have like physical intimacy or emotional intimacy when you're growing it just you grow up feeling like okay those are not things that you should have and those are not things that are available to you 
So when you get older, what you then end up doing is then re- pretty much just repeating the same styles of attachment that you had built with your parents um, when you get older in adult relationships. So you find that people that grew up with parents, like let's say the typical equity daddy issues, if their fathers were not present, <clears throat> And this doesn't just go for women alone. It also goes for men because men too have daddy issues. When their parents are not as present, their father figure is not as present as they need to be. They tend to find or find like partners that mimic that same style of inavailability or unavailability. So you now find yourself gravitating more towards people who are avoidant, people who you don't, that don't open up, people who are not as vulnerable because that's what you're used to. You're used to searching for love and wanting someone to validate you. So when you get older, that's what you look for. But when you have a secure attachment style, what that does is when you're trying to find um, affection, you're looking for someone who also has that same level of security within themselves. So chances of you attaching to a person that is unhealthy for you is very unlikely. So with a secure attachment style, the relationship you have with your primary caregiver is that they were they stayed engaged with you, they managed their own stress very well, they were able to calm you and soothe you when you were distressed, they made you feel safe, they made you feel secure, they communicated through their emotions. So it wasn't that when you're asking them questions, they're like, just do what I said you should do instead of you doing what, instead of me explaining to you what it is that you want. Then when you have people who have like the anxious or ambivalent um, attachment style, their their caregiver was most likely inconsistent, which is like my own, <laughs> my own personal attachment style is that of an anxious person. So <clears throat> the, there was like inconsistency in my, my parents' parenting style. So sometimes my parents would be there and let me know like I'm the most special and most important person in their life. And then after that, they then end up just leaving and I'm like, oh, I'm not so valued. So there was like, inconsistency. Sometimes they are present, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are available, sometimes they're not. So because of that, you then tend to develop this feeling of anxiety and uncertainty about whether you would ever meet anyone who would meet your like your relationship demands and anyone who would treat you as like valuable because in your, in, from what you've seen from your primary caregiver, it's not like you're a valuable person to them. So people that have this uh, anxious attachment that when they become older, they are in relationships where they constantly cr- crave like feelings of closeness and intimacy, but they can't fully trust. <laughs> they can't fully trust or rely that the person that loves them actually does love them. <clears throat> And then when you when they're in intimate relationships, it can be very overwhelming because they become very fixated on the other person. Their boundaries are not very clear and they don't even observe their own boundaries. And even the idea of space can make them feel like the person that they're with wants to leave them or doesn't love them anymore. And their sense of self-worth may even be attached to how they are treated in the relationship and even other things, but not within themselves. So they need constant reassurance and attention from their partner because you you know, they've grown up in a place where they're not really sure what they're going to get next. So every time they just need someone to tell them that, okay, yes, you're, you're fine. I love you. I care about you. But deep down inside, it can be very difficult for them to trust it because they've grown up in this area of inconsistency with their parenting style. And th- that just makes them feel like, okay, people are always going to be inconsistent. Then when you then have people with avoidant, um, 
an avoidant attachment style is that they the relationship they have with their caregivers or their parents were just not available. They were not there. And they, ex- they experienced rejection during their time growing up. So whatever needs they wanted, it was never met by their caregiver. So because of that, as a way of taking care of themselves, what they did was to distance themselves emotionally. They would to self-soothe and feel better. They just take care of themselves by themselves. So usually avoidant people are people that would like find themselves being very independent. They are very independent and they value their freedom to the point where if they even try to form intimacy or closeness in a romantic relationship, it can make them feel stifled or even uncomfortable. And that's just being built on the foundation that avoiding intimacy um, and that lack of intimacy is just the best way to live life. So when these people are in relationships, they are very independent. They want to take care of themselves. They don't feel like they need other people. When their partner... um, gets close to them, they become, they withdraw. They can become uncomfortable with their partner's emotions. They can become uncomfortable even with their own emotions. And they can accuse, they're the kind of people that would say, oh, your part, their partners are too needy. And then their partners would tell them that they are too distant. So they tend to minimize, sometimes disregard their, their partner's feelings, keep secrets from them, and even end relationships because they want to gain that sense of freedom. They most likely would prefer like very fleeting, casual relationships that are very surface and not long-term intimate ones because that intimacy, that idea of being safe in an intimate relationship come, like really does bring up those deep-seated feelings of fear that was created when they were growing up. So then, then the final attachment style, I didn't mention this one, it's a disorganized or disoriented attachment style. And usually people that have this kinds of attachment style, their primary caregiver had like proper unresolved trauma that created like an intense um, fear when it comes to relating with their with their um, their child or their infant. So the parent was like also a source of fear and then a source of comfort for the child. So it's like they beat the shit out of you, but then they will also at the same time give you so much love. And what that does is that it can create a sense I'm of sure confusion. A lot of people can relate relate to that. Yeah, so let's interrupt you, but I'm sure yeah. like a lot of people who were beating when they were younger can relate to that yep they, they they definitely can so it's like sitting down and just trying to understand how is it that a person who's who's giving me so much love is also the person that creates the highest amount of fear in my life and the parental figure would most likely overlook the child's needs so they experience a lot of emotional neglect financial neglect and their erratic behavior can also be frightening because one moment your parent is nice and loving the next thing they're beating you and doing very very like violent things to you so it's abusive so when they get older what they, what tends to happen is that they never really learn how to soothe their relationship them, themselves. And self-soothing is such an important characteristic that every human being needs to have. It's like being able to tell yourself sorry when you feel bad. So because they don't know how to self-soothe, everything feels frightening and everything feels um, unsafe. So when they even get into relationships, what then happens is that they tend to replicate that same abusive pattern. So if you speak to people who are abusers and about like their childhood or where they grew up or whatever it is that they experienced, you find out that they themselves had also been victims of of severe abuse. So the characteristics of these people is like they would be insensitive towards their partners, they would be selfish, they'll be controlling, they wouldn't be trusting, and they can even have like explosive and abusive behavior. They're usually antisocial or even um, 
engage in drug use, they are prone to aggression or violence, and they refuse to take responsibility for their own behavior. So they'll be like, oh, okay, um, you know what? I did it because you made me do it, because you made me feel this way. So even in um, secure, meaningful, um, intimate relationships, they will still feel unloved and even unworthy of love and terrified of getting hurt again. So those are some of the characteristics, like how the childhood experiences tie into adult relationships. Yeah. And the thing is, I'm sure most people are not consciously aware of this. Most no. times, like you said, well, the people who are avoidant of relationships, they're probably just like, yeah, I just keep meeting clingy girls or clingy guys, yeah. or I just keep meeting people who want this. Why can't people just be like this? I just prefer friends yeah. with benefits. And the thing about it is that a lot of people in our generation, and I'm going to call a lot of millennials out because this hookup right. culture, this no friends with benefits, no strings attached was me. Mm -hmm. I won't say it started with millennials, to be honest with you, but I feel like it was mo it's more common from like millennials down. Do you get what I mean? Especially in like African societies, you find it mostly yep. with from like millennials down and millennials right now. I think the oldest millennials are like in their late thirties, forty actually. The oldest millennials should be forty right now or maybe forty this year. So the thing is, when I say millennials, I'm not talking about like Gen Z because Gen Z pretty much starts at like twenty six or twenty seven now. But what I'm just saying is that a lot of us actually didn't witness. Um, that whole, like having your parents have this united front. And I won't just say us, a lot of, even our parents' generation, a lot of them were abused. So there's always this like fear of attachment. I, you know, fear of, okay, I just want something that's casual. And I think that's the way we phrase it. But the truth of the matter is a lot of people in older generations actually just got married because it was what they were meant to do. And yep. their children also witnessed their off, I'll put off in, in quotes, like they witness their off attachment styles and are mimicking them in their own relationships, even if yep. they swore that they would never be their parents. Somehow, yep. some way we, we mimic or we follow what our parents do because we yeah. are not. Yeah, because we don't heal. Like, if you don't go yeah. to therapy, if you don't talk about these things, if you don't make a conscious effort to change, you will fall into the same pattern. You're just human. True. You know what I mean? True. Like, you will become what you've seen your whole life. And usually the very first blueprint of love that you get is your parents' relationship or caregiver's relationship. Depends on who was raising you. So that's always very important. I just wanted to say that to most people listening, they'll probably be like, oh, this is not me. You don't think it's you, but have you actually stopped to assess your patterns in relationships? You know, so I just wanted to point that out. That's um, actually very valid because I always like I have clients who come into therapy and they're like, oh, I don't want to repeat the same mistakes that my parents did with me. But then the problem is that they're only just looking at the outward behavior of their parents, but never really focusing on, OK, what exactly, exactly. was the detail of this person's um, of this person's behavior? What, what exactly is the thing that made them the way that they are? Like, what is, what is it? So they never really get to the root of the, the problem that their parents had to then start to learn how to heal from it, to know how to help themselves. Like even me, myself, I mean, I remember sometime in 2017, I did this quiz that had to do with, um, attachment styles. And the only thing I remember was that they told me that I had a, they, they gave me like a breakdown of the different types of attachment styles I had. They 
in different percentages. But for some weird reason, I only paid attention to the part that said secure, but I didn't pay attention to the anxious part until recently. <laughs> um, I, until recently in a relationship that just ended, I was just, I, I sat down with myself and I had to start thinking about it. And I was like, man, Amanda, you actually do have a very anxious, preoccupied attachment style. And the reason why is because there was always this like back and forth shift between my, me and my parents where today my parents are like, oh, you're, you're the best thing ever. And then the next day it was like, you're not like, you're, you're just like the worst thing that ever happened. And then one day you're the best and the next you're the worst. And my mom also had like her own traumas to deal with as well. So it was, it, it was quite traumatic growing up, like having the physical abuse and the verbal abuse as well, being beat as a kid, being insulted as a kid. And my dad had to travel for a bit because of work. So he wasn't present. So it was like having an absent parent. And the, the parent I had like the strongest emotional attachment to was my father. So he wasn't present. And then I had my mother who was dealing with her own trauma the way that she knew how. So it was it was a very disorganized and anxious type of way of attaching that now that I've, I'm in a relationship and I'm seeing myself, I'm realizing like, oh my God, this shit actually did fuck me up. And that because of that, I have like so, so much work to do on myself as a person so that I can know how to stay in a healthy relationship. So that when someone tells me that they love me and they care about me, that I actually believe it, not because they are saying it, but because I, I feel that I am a person worthy of being loved because I, I didn't feel that way when I was growing up. I, my, my, my sense of self-worth was always attached to the things that my parents approved or celebrated me for, which was when I was doing work well, when I was, you know, practicing my, my English exercises, which is why I have this goddamn accent that people think, think is like very foreign. I've lived abroad. When, when I'm doing things that they want me to do that makes them happy that's when I felt the most loved. But for me as a person, as myself, I didn't experience a lot of approval and affection from that. So now that I'm older, I'm no longer defining myself by my work and my accomplishments. I'm defining myself by who I am. And having to face that, I'm realizing oh my, that there is like an inconsistency. Like I don't really know what it means to love myself outside of my accomplishments. So now that I'm older, I'm not having to now learn that how to love myself as a person. Yeah. That's very beautiful, Amanda. You have come a long way. You sound like you have come a long way. And as a as oh, a well, friend, I will say you. I'm proud of you. <laughs> thank you. I, I know I'm, because I'm in the realization part. Oh, I've, I'm still trying to figure out the doing part of it. And honestly, the doing part of it, which is like going against your your normal way of of thinking like going against your normal emotions or your default reaction to certain things that doing part is the hardest part it's the hardest part of everything yes but at least you've made the first step which is usually the most important thing so the, like the reason why i'm saying that is because i feel like there are a lot of people who will be listening to us who have never really paid attention to attachment styles they probably don't even really understand what it is and they always just felt like they were okay and it was maybe yoruba men or this person or that person and it's very easy for us to point the finger at other people and say it's them it's Nigerian men I just have to leave this country or is this type of man or is this type of woman you know what I mean and it, uh, some of those things are true like obviously stereotypes won't be stereotypes if there wasn't uh, some truth to them but the truth of the matter is we also need to assess ourselves and see how and there is no judgment here because 
following what you said, Amanda, I also just noticed that my attachment style was messed up last year. And this is after I've been preaching to everybody about mental health and getting therapy. And it just took an incident for me to realize, wait a minute, it was actually someone who ghosted me. And fair enough, ghosting is really, really bad because it's a very, very yeah. invalidating experience. But it's something yeah. that it's something that you do experience when you're trying to date as a young person in this modern day and age. Some people just don't have the guts to tell you to your face. Maybe they don't like you or maybe they have a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you just don't want to be honest. And when I had that experience, I was like, wait a minute. And I feel like I had to have that. And now this is just probably the spiritual side of me talking like, oh, everything happens for a reason, blah, blah, blah. But I feel, I feel like I had to have that to, for me to notice that, wait a minute, I am actually, I, I would say, was I fearful avoidant? I won't, mm. I won't say avoidant per se. I had this anxious style. So I feel like I had two attachments. Style. The main one was like anxious attachment. And that was because of irregularities in like emotional um, availability of parents growing up. I'm very similar to you. I had the same with my mom and but I wasn't always around and all that stuff. But yeah, I also noticed that after like disappointments in relationships, I became also maybe I'll say fearful avoidant to some extent. Mm. So it was kind of like, mm. I don't want to get involved in anything or I was a bit dismissive of people before even meeting them. Like I meet a guy and I'm like, oh yeah, he's your buddy. This is that. I'm pretty sure he'll be a player. I'm just like, you don't even know him. Like, can you just chill to get to know this person? And I would automatically dismiss the person in my mind. And I just felt, I'm just being smart. I'm just playing. You know, I have experience. I'm being smart. I know I'm not being dumb. I'm not being a fool for love. But the truth of the matter is a part of me was scared to fall for someone because I also just associated relationships with pain after a while. And another reason for that, you said something earlier about feeling loved or you didn't feel validated most times. And I think the major switch for me was realizing that I am worthy of love. And when, when I say that, it sounds so corny, but the truth of the matter is I always felt like I had to earn people's love. So I was more attracted to the emotionally unavailable guy because it felt like yeah. if I could finally win him over, then it was like, I am worthy of love. And it's this trophy, but yeah. it's not. It's something that you're mm -hmm. entitled to because... I gave love freely. And I remember a friend of mine saying, oh, you're cold and this, that. And I wasn't. I feel like she was just projecting onto me because that's not who I am. I even felt like I was a bit too giving. And you notice mm -hmm. the same attachment styles in friendships whereby you always try to earn and it's not a conscious thing like most times people will say well that must be so exhausting it is exhausting when you're thinking about it now but it's not a conscious thing it's not something mm -hmm. you do um because you no, want really. to do it it's something that you do because it's something you've been programmed to do like a computer a computer does what it's programmed to do you know what i mean it's not necessarily what it wants to do and that's that's the importance of knowing about your subconscious mind your conscious mind is like 10 percent of the whole thing and that's the thinking side of you that's like oh this is not logical this makes no sense but your subconscious mind is that voice that plays in the background that pretty much controls your day-to-day -day affairs and the reasons why you do things but you're not very conscious of it so I'll, I definitely would say thank you for pointing that out for saying like you are worthy of love realizing that you're worthy of love and you don't have to earn it especially as women in this society it's always about what will you do to be attractive to your husband or a man who could be your husband and this and that's what you've been conditioned to like listen to while growing up without realizing that listen you also get the opportunity to pick like you don't have to wait to be chosen you can also choose you know what i mean 
Honestly, that's actually very, very valid. And it's like, because we're just told to like stay at the background and wait for when you do something. It's like love is always conditioned towards something. Okay, so how can like, can various or can our various attachment styles lead to mental health disorders? I know this sounds like a reach, but maybe like an anxiety disorder. Could that come from your attachment style? Maybe your parent wasn't always there. You lost a parent at a young age. So now you feel like everyone is going to leave. And I'm going to say that because I I heard the story of this guy online on YouTube, actually. And he was like, for the Mm. longest time, he finally met the quote unquote love of his life. Right. And they stayed together. And he was like, for the longest Mm. time, he always felt like she would go out and not come back. And he said the reason wasn't that he thought she was going to cheat on him with another guy. But it was just mainly because um, his mom was schizophrenic growing up. So it was like she Mm -hmm. could leave for days or she could just leave and you wouldn't see see her or hear from her in a long time because she's just one of those homeless Mm -hmm. people wandering around and this this person is in America. So it's like he obviously developed an anxious attachment style and also mm-hmm. anxiety disorder in general because he would just think maybe he would get a call that she's dead so it wasn't even about just the attachment mm-hmm. style it was just the fact that he was always afraid that he was going to lose someone he loved so much I wouldn't say that you because you have that attachment style it leads to mental disorders I think that an attachment your attachment style is also like a consequence of like one of the consequences of the experiences that you had growing up. So because you had that experience, you develop that kind of attachment style and you can also then develop mental health issues in conjunction with them. So the attachment style can be like a symptom of one of the illnesses that you're experiencing or just like, you know, comorbid with it. So it's like you have this kind of attachment style and then you are also depressed. So I wouldn't say that one causes the other. I can't tell you that, um, your attachment style will cause you to develop a mental illness. Rather, what I'd say is that the ex- the experiences that you had growing up can cause you to develop an attachment style that is insecure and then also put, make you more susceptible to having mental health disorders. Like a person that has a borderline personality disorder, for example, people that have borderline tend to have anxious, preoccupied um, attachment styles because they have that fear of being left, of being abandoned, of being rejected or, sorry, um, or their loved one just not being around them or choosing them or loving them. So so you'd look at that and you wouldn't say that, okay, this is the attachment style that caused their bipolar, their, sorry, their borderline personality, but it so happens that the experiences that they had as a child caused them to have borderline personality disorder. And one of that characteristics is that the attachment style that they have formed is on is on healthy and is insecure. Mm, yeah, thanks for clearing that up. So it's like, can someone truly be cured from their insecure attachments? And there are different forms of insecure attachment styles, but is it possible? And on average, how long does it take if there is a timeline or time frame? There really isn't a timeline or a time frame, even for like treating mental illnesses. I mean, we can say like on average, people tend to respond after a certain amount of care. So, and that's on average. There are some people that would need more time to be able to adjust their attachment style. And there are some people that would need less. And there are some people that more often than not, you they would tend to fall in that middle ground. Maybe they'll probably need like six therapy sessions to do it. But to be honest, yeah, the, the, the rate at which you get better is really dependent on the amount of work you as a person you're willing to put into changing your attachment style. So if you're willing to take that risk of um, 
recognizing that this is unhealthy and then changing your response to a familiar situation as taking control of your own feelings. That's what, that's when you then can then begin to notice the change. Like for me, for example, like I have very paranoid thoughts. Um, I remember one time when my partner at the time um, sent me a text message and they weren't, I sent them a text message and I was waiting for a reply. And then he sent me a message and they were like that, Oh, I'd reply to you later because I'm busy at work. So I knew I had a reason for them not replying, but ah, two hours later, (laughs) if you see the thoughts that are going through my head, I was like, Nope, this person doesn't love me anymore. They have definitely detached from me. Not that they're not here anymore. Their mind has changed. They don't want to be around me anymore. They're going to choose to leave me. I'm sure by the time they call, they're going to be very cold and, you know, not very affected by, by us, like all the emotions that we just shared in the morning is all dead. And at this time, when I was saying this to myself, thankfully I was in a place where I was aware that, um, that's an unhealthy way to think. Um, because I said researching something called emotional permanence and object constancy, which is that, which is with like believing that even if a thing or a person leaves a certain place, that they can still have the same affection for you when they come back. So I don't have, um, I don't have really, really strong emotional constancy. If I don't, if I'm not talking to the person that I am attached to as often as possible, I quickly shift into that place of they don't care about me or they don't love me. So during that day, first thing I knew was like, I need to go to therapy for this shit. Second thing was that, okay, Amanda, what did this person <laughs> say? What, what did you say? What did they say? What did they say they're going to do? I had to reassure myself. I talked to a friend about it and she even sent me like some funny videos about it. And, I, and the next time that happened, rather than me going off the handle and thinking crazy, what I did was I asked, the, I, I asked the person, I was like, okay, are you going to reply to me? Um, so, so and so time they were like, yes, they are very busy right now, but they would definitely get back to me. And instead of staying and preoccupied myself with like thoughts about why they haven't responded when I want them to respond. I just focused on other things. I went to visit a friend. I had lunch with another friend. So before I knew it, time had passed and this person was now replying me when they were available to reply. So I wasn't obsessing. And when that happened, when they were even replying, I was just like, oh, okay, they're texting me back. So I wasn't coming down from a place of, um, a feeling of fear, like, well, this person is going to leave. This person doesn't care about me anymore. This person doesn't feel great about me because that's what I'm used to. I'm always, I'm used to people changing their emotions when it comes to me very often. So it's not so easy for me to trust that a person can say they love me today and tomorrow they'll say they love me and next day they'll say they love me and they actually mean it. I'm always just waiting for, constantly waiting for the shoe to, the other shoe to drop. When are you going to stop loving me? When are you going to hate me? When are you going to discard me? When are you going to tell me that I'm not good enough? When are you going to tell me that I'm not um, happy enough or something enough for you? But now that I'm in therapy, I'm now starting to learn how to use certain techniques. So the first thing that my therapist told me was that you need to learn how to soothe yourself. So now to self-soothe, I talk to my other friends, I pick up my phone and I start playing a video game on my phone because it distracts me from those thoughts. And I'm even able to call it out and say, okay, this is an irrational thought, Amanda, stop thinking this way. It's not always so easy to, to recognize these thoughts and these feelings, but the more, the more you do it, the better you will get at it, the more you do it. So therapy is helpful, but the real work is when you leave that therapy space off of that high of, um, I've figured out some things about myself. I've learned to 
putting those things you've learned into practice, that's where the hard work is. That's where the real job is. And that's where a lot of people struggle. But it's very important that you're, you're taking that risk to go against the pain that you're used to. That if you're, if you're a person who's believed for a very long time that you're not worthy of love, that you're not valued, and you're expecting people to respond to you a different way, or in a way that you're familiar with that comes with a lot of pain, that you take that risk to take yourself out of that space and try to believe and trust that if a person says they love you, they actually mean it. It is it's easier said than done, honestly. Like even me said when I do it, it's it's very, very it hard. Definitely is. Yeah, but the more I do it, the better I feel about myself. And even the day when I was able to like distract myself with video games and stuff, it, it, it just felt so nice to exist without that feeling of anxiety. And just knowing that, okay, I can actually live, I can actually have relationships with people and they can leave and come back and still love me. And I don't have to have this anxiety struggling with it and dealing with all these thoughts and it will bring my mood down and make me feel small and make me feel upset. And, you know, and, and when the person calls me, I'm already angry or I feel some type of way. And they're just wondering like, where the fuck did this come from? Like, why, why are all of these feelings coming up? And another thing that you learn is how to communicate your feelings a whole lot better because that's very important. Um, validating your own feelings, soothing yourself and communicating your feelings to another person. So there is no set in stone period of time. But what I'd say is that if you do start therapy, be ready to do the work it takes for you to feel as good or feel as secure in your relationship as you want to. And also let your partner know that this is something I'm struggling with. This is definitely a problem I have, but I'm working on it. Um, this is These are the things I need because you would need that support, especially with a person who has an anxious, um, preoccupied attachment style like mine. And one thing I w- I'll say is for someone who has... Um anxious preoccupied or who had and also a fearful avoidance style you kind of also have to make sure your partner is very open if you have a partner that seems to be keeping secrets then that that could be triggering for you you know because that means that they're not as open as you like for them to be so mm-hmm. thank you so, yeah. so much, Amanda. Yeah. I feel like this is a very, very eye-opening yeah, session very, very for a lot of our listeners. <laughs> and just one thing, one thing. Will you say that, like, will you advise people against diagnosing themselves of, like, anxious attachment styles or this, that, and the third? You know, because you have of some course. emotional hypochondriacs, like me sometimes. <laughs> yes, I would. I would greatly, greatly tell you don't don't diagnose yourself because sometimes these things the thing about diagnosing oneself is that you'd see you'd see a bunch of things and you see a bunch of symptoms and they all fit into like your experiences but just because they fit does not mean that that experience you're having is disordered it could be like a normal human experience and the thing about mental illnesses or mental um disorders is that they are just a deviation from the norm. So like depression is sadness, but it doesn't, it's not the kind of sadness that you feel day to day. It's deeper than that. It's normal and human to have anxiety, but that doesn't mean that every anxiety is disordered. It's normal for you to sometimes hear voices that are not there or sometimes see things. And there are people who hallucinate or 
their hallucinations and they're seeing things can be like a spiritual experience. And sometimes it's just a human mind acting the way it does. You have the capacity to do it. It would definitely happen. Doesn't mean that you're crazy or you've lost your mind. It could even just be the use of a substance that has caused that to happen. So I tell people like, don't self-diagnose. You can, you can use the information out there to have, um, an idea of who you are or a suspicion of, okay, this is something I might want to work on or something that I, I might, I might be struggling with, but please go and speak to a professional who understands how to diagnose people to give you a proper diagnosis of what it is that you're struggling with so that you're not diagnosing what isn't a mental illness as a mental illness. Some people may go outside to like places and feel uncomfortable with like talking to people. And then they would say they have social anxiety disorder. And I'm like, okay, maybe you don't have social anxiety disorder maybe what you need is to learn how to relate with people a bit better and improve your interpersonal skills there's a criteria that you need to meet before a mental illness can be categorized as a disorder it's not just i fit a symptom and that's it there needs to be a period of time it must be consistent irrespective of the space it is and it has to fit certain the symptoms need to fit certain criteria and with with criteria like for for diagnosis people don't fit that exact box like every single thing that they've said is exactly what you have and that's why you're not human beings vary in the presentation of their symptoms so the diagnosis of mental illnesses and disorders and even attachment styles can be very it can be tricky that you may end up thinking okay that one time there was a boy that talked to me and I didn't want to talk to him back and then a bunch of other boys talked to me and I didn't want to talk to him and you say that that's because you are you have an avoidant attachment style but then the truth is maybe you're just not attracted to them. Maybe there was something about the way they were dressed, how they were smelling, um, the approach that they used to talk sure. to you that makes you feel like you don't feel comfortable enough to want to have relations with those people. It could even be a thing of you're in a space in your life that you weren't feeling very open and to being vulnerable with people and, you know, form relationships with them that are romantic. And all of a sudden you just categorize yourself as, Oh, I'm, I'm an avoidant person. No, 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 no. So don't be so quick to take a label. You can use it as a consideration to understand yourself, but present it in front of a professional to give you a proper understanding and diagnosis of who you are because they have more knowledge and they went to school for it. I beg we have degrees. TikTok and Google are not enough. You, you it's like going on the internet and saying you want to find out if you, you type all your symptoms and then they tell you that you have a brain disorder it's literally the same thing with mental illness people type in that you have oh my god i have this i have this other this disorder that i'm like no 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 bro that's why we have a whole ass textbook for that and the tests that we used to assess for certain disorders they need to be tested and retested and validated and to be considered reliable across multiple um, cultures and across different people before we can accept them as a worthy type of assessment so not every assessment, just because there's a quiz there that says, oh, we can do this, 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 you can use it. No, sometimes these quizzes are nice, but they don't give you an accurate description. Human beings are too complex for you to simplify your being from just a bunch of words that you've seen on the internet. So I am personally, I am against self-diagnosis, but I encourage my clients and I always tell them to read up and become more mentally aware so that if they can even sense some symptoms that they consider suspicious enough, like, okay, I may be struggling with this. I might be struggling with that. That, okay, that's a first step because even the client's awareness can be very helpful when it comes to diagnosing them in a clinical um, space. But don't be so quick to just 
slap a label on your head as this is who you are based off of something that you've seen on the internet. So self-diagnosis is best as a, a first step to knowing oneself and knowing one's mental state, but it's not the final step when it comes to diagnosis. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm also very glad you clarified that because I know a lot of people (laughs) who fall into that category after listening to this. Oh, yeah, there are plenty. Very much. Thank you very much. And please, like, can you share like your social media handles for people and also just tell us a bit more about your of course, business? Of course. Okay, so I run a private practice called Ndidi. And what we do is we provide psychotherapy services and psychiatric services to our clients. We're primarily virtual. So irrespective of where you are in the world, we'll be able to provide you care and assistance. Um, what you need to do is just go on our website, which is www.ndidi.com. Dot, dot me that's n-d-i-d-i dot m-e to um, either book a therapy session or to order a package to be able to speak to a psychiatrist and then have a therapy session after so if you want to find us on Instagram we are at ndidi and that is n-d-i-d-i but there's like a full stop so it's n dot d dot i dot d dot i so you can find us there on Instagram or just go straight to our website at www.ndidi.com Thank you very much, guys. What are you waiting for? Please reach out to Amanda if you are in need of her services or you know anyone who is. Until I come your way again, stay blessed. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Imole. Please make sure you rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts wherever you stream your episodes. You can also send me emails about today's episode or anything related to mental health and spirituality through fanmail at imolethepod.com. Finally, please subscribe to the Imole newsletter to learn more about our episodes through the link in the episode notes. Thank you and see you on the next episode. This episode was produced by Aisha Salaudin, audio mixed by Lord Phil, and is distributed by Visual Audio Times. For more podcasts, visit visualaudiotimes.com.